morning. I was walking around out in the lobby and I had this Garth, what I call the Garth Brooks mic. And I was walking around and people asked me if I was doing a special music today. And uh, for your sake, uh, you should be assured that I'm not. Um, and uh, I uh, have not preached in a little while, so I've I'm, I'm really been looking forward to this. And I'm going to try to keep it under two hours. So hopefully we can get out of lunch uh, on, a, on, a, on a timely fashion here. But um, I want to start off by just talking a little bit about my story and who I am to kind of introduce myself to you all. And we'll, be, we'll dive into the text. Um, Aristotle uh, used an illustration uh, to describe, uh, um, he, he, he talked about a fish. He said, if, if you want to know about what it's like to be wet, uh, don't ask a fish about it. Because a fish, that's all he's known his entire life is, is water. He doesn't know what it's like to be wet because he's never been anything but wet. Um, and I grew up in, uh, in church my entire life. I grew up in Vienna, as uh, Jordan was talking about earlier, and uh, basically all I knew about uh, church was just from birth. I just grew up going to church my entire life. Uh, I think that uh, what happened to me was when I got to college, um, that, uh, that all changed. I'm from a town where, uh, like in Vienna, we had a, a deer day. Uh, we got out of school for deer day. It was a holiday. Uh, we had another day called Tractor Day, uh, where kids would actually drive their tractor and park it on the school grounds and go into class. Uh, that's the town I grew up in, a town where everybody knew your name, and it was a safe place you did, where you were familiar. There was a lot of familiarity. Everybody knew who you were. You knew who everybody else was, and I was in church every Sunday. And then I went to college, and I began to get outside of that bubble, so to speak, outside of that safety, outside of that familiarity. And I began to, to ask myself a lot of questions, and I had a lot of questions uh, asked of me. And um, I, I actually joined a fraternity, and I joined the fraternity for all the wrong reasons. Uh, I wanted to be popular. I wanted to be noticed. I wanted to build a resume and build a network. Um, and those were the reasons that I, that I joined that fraternity. But while I was in that fraternity, God, God used that fraternity uh, in a mighty way in my life. Uh, there were some questions that were asked of me. Um, while I was there. Uh, there was one particular uh, type of an event where uh, one of the questions that I was asked was, who are you? And uh, the first time I was asked it, I said, well, I'm Russ Cruder. Uh, then they asked the same question a second time, who are you? And I said, I think I'm uh, Russ Cruder. And then the third time, they just kind of yelled, who are you? And I said, I don't know, uh, whoever you want me to be, I, I don't know. And the second question was, what are you? what are you? What are you? And at first I said, I, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian? Well, I don't, I, don't, uh, I don't know. I don't know what you're looking for. And the third question was, where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you going? I didn't know the answers to those questions. Not with certitude, I did not. I had another friend of mine who had leukemia, he was a strong believer. He planned his entire funeral out before he died, picked all the hymns he wanted sung, picked the text he wanted preached, all of those things. And he passed away at age 20. And during this same season of my life, I went to that funeral and I saw him laying there in a casket. And when you see a friend of yours that's your age, age 20, laying in a casket, it tends to put your life in perspective. And you begin to ask yourself, what is it that I'm really living for? And the third thing that really got me 
was I began to uh, get in this deep theological debate with some guys in that fraternity house that the, that the rest of the fraternity referred to as a Christian coalition. And so I began to, because I was so prideful, I wanted to win the argument, I began to read all of their texts and all their books that they wanted me to read. Um, in particular, I began to read Romans. And as I read through Romans and another book, uh, as actually a sermon by Jonathan Edwards uh, called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God that was actually used by God to spark the Great Awakening, um, I began to, to understand God's mercy for the first time. And God's mercy simply defined is not getting what you deserve. Not getting what you deserve. And so as I began to understand God's mercy, I began to appreciate God's grace. And grace, basic definition, is getting what you don't deserve. So God in his patience, he, 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 was, he held his wrath back from crushing me, that's his mercy. But then not only does he not crush me under his wrath, he gives me grace. He gives me grace and love and loving kindness, and he gives me the kingdom by his grace. And so because I began to understand God's mercy, I began to appreciate his grace. I was actually in a humanities class down at Murray, and uh, we began to read uh, Plato's Allegory of the Cave. Anybody read Plato's Allegory of the Cave? Jordan? There's a couple of hands I see through the lights back there. Um, in Plato's Allegory of the Cave, there's this setting where you've got this group of people down in like a sub-cave or a chasm in this cave, and they've been chained to this wall ever since birth. And so they grow up and they see these shadows on the wall, and that's all they've ever seen are these shadows. What they don't realize is that up in another part of the cave, there is a fire, and there is a group of people with puppets and the puppets are actually making those shadows on the wall. The only reality that these people had ever known their entire life were these shadows, and they assumed that that's the only reality there was, that that was absolute reality. What they did not realize is the actual truth of the matter was that there was a group of people making these shadows, and that there was an entirely new world outside of the cave altogether. I grew up as a fish that didn't really even understand its wetness, that knew it was wet. And by God's grace, he took me to his word. And through his word and his whole counsel, as I got alone with him and I encountered him, he took me outside. He, he took the shackles off. He took me outside of the cave and introduced me to an entirely new world. God is holy. And by definition, holy means something other. God is something other than us. He is different than us. We assume that like, if, for example, if there was a woman from India that walked into this room right now wearing a bright-colored sari, she would stand out. And some of us might be thinking, okay, she's, she's, she's weird, she's different, she's other than us. God is other than us. He is separated from us. He is holy. And the only way that we can have eyes to see and ears to hear is because of the, the pouring out of His grace through His Holy Spirit to take this word and illuminate it to us, turn the lights on in the darkness, and teach us great and mysterious things we do not yet know. That happens only by God's grace and only because of his mercy. We need to know who we are, not just theoretically, but experientially. And coming to church on Sunday, ritualistically, every Sunday, one Sunday after another, are we here because it's the right thing to do? Are we here because it's the ritual, 
Or are we here to encounter something holy, something different? Are we here to grow in our spiritual understanding of who God is and in turn learn more about who we are? It is impossible for us to know who we are apart from an understanding of who God is. We must understand who God is, and in turn, we begin to understand who we are, and in turn, those shackles get cut off, and in turn, God takes us outside of that cave, and he teaches us about a whole new world that we have not yet known or understood. And the good news for us is that these scriptures are not dead, and they are going to tell us more about who we are, and they are going to usher us into the presence of God himself. And that's why I love Revelation 5. That's why I love passages that take us outside and shake us out of our slumber and out of our sleep, and they usher us into absolute what is real. Because this world is so easy to become desensitized to the things of God, so easy to become distracted from the things of God. There's a lot of noise, a lot of white noise. And what God does through his word is it becomes like a portal, and it takes us out of that noise and out of that slumber and into the presence of God himself. So I believe that we in America, we've got such a small view of who Jesus is that we become powerless. We've basically asked Jesus to come and be a citizen of our kingdom, when in reality we should be citizens of his kingdom, as the Bible teaches. And so a deep and probing question for you this morning as we begin to unpack this passage is, are you a citizen of Jesus' kingdom this morning? Or have you merely asked Jesus to become a citizen of your kingdom? Deep and probing question. Is when you come to church, is it to learn more kind of, okay, here's, here's how I can ask Jesus to make my life better, or here's a way I can tack Jesus onto my life, kind of like an insurance policy? Or are you coming to church to lose sight of yourself in the light of his glory and grace? That's what church should be mostly about. It's a wake-up call for us. So look with me at Revelation chapter 5 if you have your Bibles. I'm just going to simply uh, walk through this. Uh, Revelation chapter 5 verse 1, as Jordan has already read, this is just a vision of God, and I believe that's what we need. That's what I need. I need a vision of God. I don't, need, I don't need to look at myself in the mirror. I need to look away from myself. I want to look at who God is, and then his beauty will transform me. We want to magnify Christ. That's why I love being a part of this church, because that's, what's the, that's the heartbeat of this church, is to magnify Christ. I believe it was A.W. Tozer that said, you know, there's so many different problems in here in this room right now. I cannot possibly preach a sermon on every single problem in this room. But if I give you a vision of who Jesus Christ is, if I give you a robust vision of God and the, tri the triune God of the universe, that will speak to a thousand problems. That will speak to every problem in this room. What we need to do is, is to gaze upon Christ, and this is just a robust vision of who Christ is. He's not a little pocket-sized Jesus that we can just kind of tack on and take with him or take with us wherever we go. No. He's the creator of every heartbeat in this room. He's the sustainer of every body in this room, including the chairs we're sitting on. But that, all right, let's go to Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. Why do you think, it's, why do you think there's writing on the front and the back of the scroll? I didn't know, so I had to study it. 
And the reason, if you go back to Roman times, very important documents, legal documents like wills, what they would do is they'd actually have the contents of the will written on the scroll, and on the back side of the scroll, they would kind of summarize the contents of it. So in Roman times, when this was written, the, the scroll that was written on the back signified something very important, like a will, a, a very important legal document. And so what does a scroll represent biblically? I think the Bible is the best commentator that there is. Uh, look at Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Ezekiel prophesies, and he says this, And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me. Notice it was not a claw, it was not a talon, it was a, a hand, a human hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Not a coincidence. And he spread it out before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. This is Ezekiel prophesying hundreds of years before Jesus existed. Hundreds of years before. And there was written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. So this, this scroll contains the secret will of God about the future history of the universe. One commentator states that it is a will of God, and whoever opens it will execute it. So think about it like your will. If you've got a will drawn up for you and your family, and there's an executor of the will, whoever opens up this will will execute it. And it says that this, this scroll is sealed with seven seals. One seal is sufficient, right? You put a wax insignia, you stamp it down on the envelope, and when you get it, if it's been broken, then you'll know somebody's tampered with it. One seal is sufficient. This scroll has seven seals on it, written on the front and back, signifying how important it is. Daniel 12, verse 4. Daniel receives a vision of a sealed book. It says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. This, see, this scroll has been sealed until the end, the judgment. So it's safe to say, how does this apply to you? This scroll applies to your redemptive future, and not just for you personally, but the future of the entire cosmos, the future of the entire universe, hinges upon what is written inside this scroll that has been sealed with seven seals. So it's a very important book, scroll about the will of God. And then look at verse 2. And I saw a strong angel, not a weak angel. This is a strong angel. And he's proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? When you all think of an angel, what do you think of? You think about Cupid, possibly. You know, a lot of, I grew up thinking these angels are just kind of cute beings. You go into a Christian bookstore, and you've got cute little Christmas cards with cute little angels, and you've got cute little porcelain angels out here. That is not what a biblical angel looks like. Biblically, if you just look it up and do a study on angels in the Bible, every time an angel shows up and manifests itself to a human being, the human being falls down thinking it's going to kill him. 
and he's terrified. Isaiah chapter 6, he, he, he receives a vision of seraphim. Seraph, what is a seraph? Hebrew definition of a seraph is a burning one. So it's a, it's a being that never stops burning. This is what Isaiah sees in the temple. And Isaiah's reaction is he falls down on his face. He says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He falls down thinking the angel is going to kill him. And every time the angel appears, the angel's message to the human being is fear not. Why would the angel have to tell a human being to fear not if the human being was not fearful of what he saw? These angels are holy beings. They are warrior beings. They are mighty beings. Seraphim, cherubim, angels. And here you have this angel. This is a strong angel. And he's proclaiming with a loud voice, seeming to represent the whole host of the angelic beings. And his voice is not quiet. It's not a cute a little, you know, I've got a harp in my hand. No, he's got a loud, booming voice. And with this loud, booming voice, he asks this question, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And the answer is, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So you've got the unfolding here of the, of the human, redemptive, final chapter of history. That is the resurrection from the dead that Jesus promised and the apostles taught. The completion of that salvation, the, the completion, the summation of that salvation cannot take place if this scroll is not executed. Salvation cannot be completed if this will of God is not executed and is not fulfilled. So think about this, this big and glorious book, and you've been reading all the way through it, and you get to the final chapter. If this final chapter is not written, whatever you just read throughout the rest of that book previously is for naught. It's wasted. It's gone. The completion of our salvation and the completion of our redemptive history is held not in a talon, not in a claw, but in a human hand in the heavenly beings. And he's sitting on a, seated on a throne. And this is what causes John to weep. When this big, giant warrior angel with a booming voice, this strong angel, when he asks this question, who is worthy? says, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to take, open the scroll or to look into it. Not only could these seraphim that never quit burning, not only could they not take the scroll, they couldn't even look at the scroll. They couldn't even look into the scroll, let alone open it. And John begins to weep. And he weeps loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And then in verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So you've got a lamb standing. Do you know how they, uh, how they offered sacrifices in the Old Testament, these lambs? They would actually slice the throat 
and take the blood and splatter it down on the altar, onto the mercy seat. You've got a lamb standing, a slaughtered lamb standing as though he had been slain. And so you've got this dead lamb that's now alive, and this lamb apparently, obviously, is mightier than all the angels. Why? Because he created all those angels. So you've got a human hand, this human sitting on this throne, and he is worthy to open the scrolls in part because he created all of those angels, those mighty seraphim. He created every single one of them by the word of his power. And he sends these spirits into all the earth. Verse 7, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Seems pretty audacious, unless he is God. And so he goes up and does something that no angel has ever done in the history of the universe, that no angel has ever done in all of eternity past, that no, that no angel has ever done in the history of heaven. This resurrected human being comes and takes the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Not only is he able to look at it, he's able, he, he goes right up to the throne and grabs a hold of it with a human hand and grabs it, executing incredible authority that had never been seen before in the history of heaven. And in verse 7, he went and took the scroll from the right hand and he was seated on the throne. And in verse 8, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So because of what this lamb has done, now you've got these golden bowls full of incense, and we all know, hopefully know that incense is a fragrant aroma. And now you've got this, they're bringing this fragrant aroma and seating it down in the presence of this God-man, in the presence of this lamb that was slain. And the Bible teaches us that, the, that this fragrant aroma that is brought into the very presence of God are your prayers. Do you want to know why your prayers are heard? Your prayers are heard because the God-man grabbed a scroll, opened it, executed the will, and now your prayers are before this holy, holy, holy God, a fragrant aroma in his presence. You have no ability to approach this God apart from the cracking open of this will of God by the slain Lamb of God. There is no access for you into the Holy of Holies unless the sacrifice was made. And they're holding a harp, and they began to worship and make music. And it says in verse 9 that these angelic beings, these mighty, holy beings... They sang a new song, not an old song, a song that had never been sung in the history of heaven is, beginning to be, is going to begin to be sung. And here it is. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, 
and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's the new song that's being sung in heaven. What is amazing to me is to think that this ransom of God, and a ransom is simply, I was explaining this to my children uh, yesterday about what a ransom is. And I, I said to Silas, my son, I said, son, this is just like, imagine some Mexican cartel kidnapped you, and then they call me up on the phone and they say, uh, we've got your son. We demand $1 trillion and we'll give them back to you. What is, your, what is my response as a dad to hear that? Devastation. I don't have a trillion dollars. This is an impossible task for me. But what Jesus has done is impossible. He has taken the camel and he has put it through the eye of the needle and he has paid a ransom that none of us could possibly hope to pay. And he's paid a ransom not just for each and every person that believes on him that is here gathered here today as the church. He has done it, it says here, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Why do we go to Haiti? Why do we go to the Dominican Republic? Why do we go to South America? Why do we go to the ends of the ends of the earth? Why do we go to the darkest reaches of the earth where no human being has ever prayed to Jesus before? Here is why. Because Jesus has ransomed people for himself from every tribe and people and language, from every nation. That is why we go. We go to the ends of the earth because God has people there. And because the lamb is worthy, the lamb who was slain is worthy to receive praise from these people. We go to take Jesus to these people. And it says that God is establishing a kingdom and he's making these, this kingdom and this people priests to our God. And it says they shall reign on the earth. Not up in a cloud, not playing a harp, not, not wearing choir robes, singing the same songs over and over and over again. It says they shall reign on the earth. You remember the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall what? They shall inherit the what? The earth. I love how Scripture agrees with itself all the way through. Testifies to its own authority. The blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What God is doing, what this scroll, this will of God that is being executed, it affects the entire earth. Then look at verse 11. And when I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the, the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Can you imagine being there? How loud it was. If you've got one angelic angel that's strong with a loud voice asking who is worthy to open the seals, who is worthy to open the scroll, imagine thousands and thousands and myriads and myriads and they're all singing the same song in unison, in harmony. Imagine how loud it was. And here's what they're saying with a loud voice. Here's what they're saying in verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Imagine you're, you're there. 
I mean, I, I, we go to fireworks shows, and we, and we see those little, the, the ones that go up and flash and make a big bang, and it, you can feel the ground shake a little bit, and you can feel some of them, or a lot of them are going up, you can feel it in your chest. Imagine myriads and myriads of holy angels saying this over and over again loudly, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature, they're all made. And who made them? Jesus made them. That, that great God that you're trying to fit in your pocket and attach onto your kingdom and kind of tack him onto your life, he created every single angelic being in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every creature that he made in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever exclamation point and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped notice that this scroll this will that is being executed it doesn't just affect the church, it affects the universe. When you flip on the Discovery Channel and you watch Shark Week and you see these cute little baby seals jumping up out of the water, fending for their lives, doing all these acrobatic things, and you've got this great white shark jumping up, you're rooting for the seal. At least I am. And then, and then the shark comes up and devours the seal and it goes down in a pool of blood. That is not. That doesn't feel natural, does it? doesn't feel normal. doesn't feel right. You watch lions devouring antelope, and they've got blood all over their face, and they've got these wild eyes. You watch anacondas trying to eat a, cro- a crocodile or an alligator, and it rips their stomach open. You've got mudslides, and you've got tsunamis, and you've got hurricanes, and you've got earthquakes. The creation, Romans teaches us, is groaning like a woman who is in childbirth waiting for the sons of God to be revealed, waiting for the scroll to be cracked open and fully executed, waiting for the will of God to be done on the earth as it is in heaven, waiting for the meek to inherit the earth. This scroll affects everything, and that is no exaggeration. It literally affects every molecule in the entire universe, every Thing in it. And verse 14, when you, get, you gain this vision of this lamb that had been slain with a human hand grabbing a hold of this scroll with absolute and utter authority that had never been seen before, he takes this scroll, he cracks open all seven seals, he unrolls it. And he is able to look into it. And not only is he able to look into it, he is the only one who is able to execute it. And he has done it by his blood. And one day, in the blink of an eye, a thousand years is like a a second in God's sight. He will come back and it will be finally, fully, executed forever. And there'll be no more tears. There'll be no more nursing homes. There'll be no more wheelchairs. There'll be no more leprosy. 
There'll be no more crying. There'll be no more killer viruses. There'll be no more mudslides and tsunamis and earthquakes. One day, it says that the child will play over the, the adder's den. One day, it says the lion will eat straw, and a child will be able to lay down with that lion. One day very soon, that finality will take place. And the response, the appropriate response is what? What do we have to offer this God? We don't have a trillion dollars to pay a ransom. God owns every penny in your... You know, I heard, I heard a pastor say this one time. God is not the wealthiest person, the wealthiest being, because he has more money than everybody else. God is the wealthiest being because he owns all the wealthiest people that have ever lived and all their money. He created every single one of them. What do we have to, to repay God? We can't, there's nothing except come to him with an empty cup and ask him to fill it. Come and fill me. Come and offer your body as a living sacrifice unto the Lord. And you know what the good news is about God and his grace? He's, he's wasteful with it. When you come to God and you ask God to give you a drink, and you take your little cup into his presence, he doesn't just take a little pitcher and fill that cup up. He gives you Niagara Falls. He gives you more grace than you will ever need. Grace upon grace upon grace forever and ever and ever. And our only response to that is worship. Just join with the created beings in heaven. Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. And hear the voice of the angel telling you to fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. Let's pray. Father, please help this to go down from our ears and down into our souls. Help this to be reality. God, I pray you would set us free from all the shadows that we have grown up seeing on the wall. I pray that you would break all the chains. I pray that you would usher us into your presence. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, I pray that we might be able to take this small glimpse as though in a glass dimly lit. We struggle with these sinful eyes to see you. I pray that just a little glimpse, Father, would allow us as we sing here, as we come to your table, I pray that it would make it meaningful and make it sincere and make it authentic and make it real and not just a ritualistic exercise. We pray this, Jesus, for your glory. You are worthy. You are the lamb that was slain. You are worthy of our worship. And I pray that as we sing, we will join the myriads and myriads of angels around your throne. I pray that we will join your church from every language that is gathering across this globe today. And I pray that this singing would be meaningful. I pray you would stir our affections for your glory. Amen.